Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, this morning it's appropriate because it is the love chapter that we're reading in 1 Corinthians. Paul's gospel, I would claim, has as its central theme not grace, not righteousness. Those are central or key. They are not the central theme. I think love is the center of Paul's gospel. It is the center of the gospel. Love, as Paul presents it here and in all of his letters, is the point of Christian faith. And so that's my, the title this morning. Love is salvation. Salvation is love. So in this chapter, knowledge, faith, gifts of the Spirit, without love are pointless. Love is the criteria by which everything is to be measured. Doctrine, theology, religion, even spirituality, apart from love, are pointless. The inverse of this is that all of these things have their point only as they serve the purpose of love. So let's read together 1 Corinthians 13. We'll just read the first seven verses. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of mercy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Maybe one of the most beautiful sections of scripture. And many people think Paul has taken time out from his other form of letter writing to here kind of write a poem of praise to love. One way of understanding love, as he's describing it, is to eliminate what it is not, or worse, to experience what it is not, which we've all experienced. And I think the extraneous nonsense in our lives becomes starkly clear when you find love, and especially when you find love where it's formerly been absent. Let me give you some syllogisms here that just directly drawing from Paul. The purpose of the gifts of the Spirit are fulfilled in love, but love is not fulfilled in the gifts. We could extrapolate from that the purpose of the law is fulfilled in love, in both the teaching of Jesus and Paul, but love is not fulfilled by the law. And the summation of it all the purpose of salvation is fulfilled in love. It is not salvation if it is not love. 
And of course, the key question in all of this, well, what is love? In Paul's explanation, love serves the other. This is actually thematic, and this is kind of the culmination of his theme here in Corinthians. Love serves the other through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but one must not confuse this giftedness with the thing itself. Knowledge, wisdom, prophecy, these gifts without love, he says, are a pointless nothing. The inverse of this is that all of these gifts have their point. In other words, this is why we're gifted with these things. In order to serve the purpose of love. But the gifts are not inherently attached to love. As exercise of the gifts, this is Paul's warning, may provoke envy, inflated importance, pride, arrogance. And of course, if you have these things, then you don't love. Paul's earlier contrast, he says, he warns that knowledge inflates, but love builds up. Prophecy or supposed knowledge received or exercised without love it just creates self-importance. Without love, he says, I am nothing. Even the apostle. Pride and selfishness can apparently be fed by the gifts of the Spirit. Think of that. Even our spirituality, the height of our spirituality, may feed our sinful experience. Paul's thinking here of a kind of economy in a sinful economy, a zero-sum economy cannot afford love because it diminishes our power if we're not thinking of ourselves only. It does not promote our agenda. Love rejoices in the truth by way of contrast. It does not tire of support, Paul says. It never loses faith. It's inexhaustible in hope. It never gives up. Think of a circumstance with your children, with people who are difficult. Of course, it's our idea that I would like to give up sometimes. Paul says love never gives up. This is not a zero-sum economy, but one in which there is an infinite supply of supply of life, of resources, of glory. And that's what Paul says at the end of the chapter we'll come to next week. Love never ends. It is enduring. It is spreading. It is inclusive. It is not seeking the glory. But it recognizes that there are infinite resources of life and light. Maybe Paul's conclusion, it converges with John's definition. Three word definition. God is love. Our experience of love, then, is our experience of God. And when we see others through the eyes of love, I believe we see them as God sees them. This is what Soren Kierkegaard says, Love discovers truths about individuals that others cannot see. Love discovers truths about the world, I believe, that are otherwise invisible. If you miss love, you miss other people. You miss the world. And in reality, you miss yourself. That's what it means to be lost. To be lost to love. Now my second point here is that the law is fulfilled through love. Jesus quotes Leviticus 19. This isn't Jesus' idea. This is the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
when he sums up the law and I believe his own purpose. He quotes this in Matthew. Jesus is not the origin of this idea, but he is certainly the fulfillment of its possibility. In all four Gospels, Jesus captures the reversal, I believe, of unlovingness. And he institutes love when he says, For whoever would save his life, there's lack of love, selfishness, will lose it. It's already a loss of life. But whoever loses his life, whoever's giving, serving of others, sacrificially serving, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is the gospel in summary. There is love in summary. This describes the movement of love, not hoarding my life, my stuff, my interest, myself, but giving up really on myself as a project and pouring myself out in love. The Greek term that gets at this is kenosis, a kenotic love we might call it. A giving up of life, this is the summation of salvation that Jesus is starting. This fulfills the law, this fulfills neighbor love. It moves beyond justice. This love means giving up even on the idea of demanding, you know, securing justice, the self against the neighbor, preserving the self by means of the law, or the mistaken understanding of imagining that life is in the law. Kenotic service of the neighbor, in which one finds life, I believe that is the movement. Think of the incarnation pictured in Philippians 2.7. Forsaking power and position, Jesus bore the cross is the picture. Not counting on what were his rights as divinity, not equality, grasping equality with divinity, but taking the role of a servant. If there is, this is Paul's point, law is fulfilled in love. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Romans 8 says something similar. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's pretty clear, isn't it? If you wrong your neighbor, if you harm your neighbor, that's not love. That's not fulfilling the law. That's not Christian. That's not being a follower of Christ. And so what becomes clear in Paul's explanation and Jesus' explanation, actually I think Paul extends it, you know, love will fulfill the law, but the law will not fulfill love. If a man keeps the law, he loves his neighbor, but he's not a lover because he keeps the law, but because 
He loves, right? He keeps the law because he loves. The law cannot fulfill itself any more than the gifts of the Spirit can fulfill love in and of themselves. We are made for love, not for law. We are made for love, not religion. You know, you could just go through and list all the things we're not made for. Love fulfills and keeps the law because it is infinitely more than the law. It is God himself. And so the third point, love is the very point of the Christian faith in Paul's explanation again and again. But how or why is this the case? I mean, we say this, but sometimes I think we miss it. We don't understand it. That what we are saved from in Christianity is lovelessness. We have an incapacity for love that we're saved from. God is love and salvation is being restored to loving relationship, to divine fellowship, in love. And sin then, what is sin? Well, it's anything that obstructs love, right? Anything that's not loving. What is our problem? It's not that we have guilt which requires that a price be paid so God is able to love us because he's so angry. Our problem is our entire identity is consumed by a kind of incapacity for love. I believe this is what shame is. This is what pride is. This came clear to me in a Japanese context, rereading the Bible. In Japan, there is an understanding of the self. There's a two parts to the self. There is the tatamai. There is my outward presentation of self. And my outward presentation of self is always to protect my honne, my inward self. You never, to anyone at any time, reveal honne. And when you do, in popular literature, to open your heart, to be vulnerable to another, is a form of death. Such a sad picture. And yet, I think that picture that you get in a Japanese concept of self precisely duplicates what the biblical picture of the fall is all about. That in shame, people hide. They hide behind clothing, trees, but they also hide behind pride. If you're hiding, you cannot be present for other people. If you cannot be present for other people, you cannot love them. If you're protecting yourself, if you're making yourself invulnerable, you do not have the capacity to love other people. James McClendon sums it up. He says, in genuine presence, I am with another and she or he with me. And there is a wholeness in shared act or fact of our being there. But shame is a failed wholeness. Thus, face to face with another, but ashamed, we lose a sense of presence. Where one cannot be present, obviously, you're incapacitated. Love is an impossibility. And so I believe the primal negative emotion, the root problem, as the Bible portrays it, is not that we are guilty, but that we are filled with shame that we are shamed. And this is depicted in the Genesis, it's depicted in the wisdom literature throughout the Old Testament. It's taken up by Paul, his grand declaration at the beginning of the book of Romans, I am not ashamed. There is wholeness. Shame compels us not merely to hide from others, to hide our body, 
but it involves us in continually hiding behind a mask of invulnerability. And pride, of course, is directly connected to this. You know, what is pride? Well, it could be any number of things, but it's a mask, whatever it is. It could be individual, it could be national. And we use pride to ward off shame, because shame will kill you, to expose yourself. And so Paul's describing this, our greatest gifts and abilities, even our spiritual gifts, may feed into the cover-up, may feed into pride. Even our spiritual gifts may obstruct love. This means our entire religion, even our Christian faith, Paul is warning, can be a facade behind which we hide, behind which we remain invulnerable, protected, unexposed. This isolation, invulnerability, it's not simply a mask we wear. I believe it's descriptive of human experience outside of love. The picture in Romans 7, I think you can contrast with what Paul's doing in chapter 13. He's saying a similar thing. Outside of Christ, outside of love, the eye covets. In 13 he says, burns with envy. But love does not envy. The eye outside of love is deceived about the law, how to establish the self. And that's sin. But love rejoices with the truth. Sin is caught up in the fear of death, a kind of zero-sum game. There's only so much to go around. i got to take it from you to get it, or you've got to take it from me. That creates a system of envy, jealousy, and shame. And of course, the picture is an isolated individual. I am I. That describes human experience, but I think it also describes human desire. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, you could take Paul's other passages, this I, this death-dealing lovelessness is undone in a corporate identity. We're baptized into the body of Christ. Envy, desire, conflict, they're displaced by love. Love is making a unity, making one out of a plurality. Not that we lose our individual identity, but we gain our individual identity in and through this corporate identity. And of course the grand picture in Romans, all of creation, the grand picture in this end of 1 Corinthians 13, this is the summation of everything. Faith, hope, these things will be set aside, but love is enduring. The love of Christ enables us entry into love relationships, into love relationships with other people and God. We can lay down our lives in agape love. And this is what Jesus models. This is what Paul is modeling. So to conclude, it must be noted, if you had to pick a teaching of Jesus, where does Jesus sum this up? He says many things about love, but actually he tells a story. You remember the Pharisees come and the man wanting to be justified, you know, what's the summation of the law? Love your neighbor. And the man says, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. We all know the story. And it's clear in this story that the religious leaders, the really important people who pass by on the other side, they don't qualify, right? They're not neighbors. You know, we also might note the thieves are creating the need for a neighbor. The thieves put the poor man in the ditch. They rob him. They beat him. Leave him for dead. Is there a, a hierarchy here? Is it better to be a 
religious leader than a thief? I don't know. I guess it would be a promotion to be a bad neighbor or no neighbor at all. But really in Jesus' story, they're the same thing, aren't they? The difference between the two, yeah, the religious leaders don't rob the guy, but they just leave him there. I suppose we could divide the world up. But I don't think there's a big difference between the thieves and the religious leaders. There is certainly not the difference that there is between the Samaritan, the good neighbor, the one who's loving, and everyone else. And so people actively harm us. They attempt to take what we have. They willingly destroy our life. We've all experienced it. We've all met the thieves. Sometimes the thieves are Christian thieves, the religious leaders. But make no mistake, those who would dispossess us, oppress us, mistreat us, and though they do it in the name of Jesus, who are they? They're the robbers. They're the thieves. You don't have to question anything else just by what they do to you. Bad neighbor, I guess, would be a promotion for those you know who put us in this condition. In Paul's description in 1 Corinthians, the proud, the arrogant, the rude, those burning with envy, longing for power and position in the church in Corinth, or in any church or any Christian institution, may only be identified, this is what Paul's warning, it amounts to nothing. All of these gifts, all of this knowledge, all of this power, you're just generating nothing. In Jesus' language, you're a bunch of thieves. And on the other hand, we have all had loving Samaritans in our lives. Faith and I have experienced the love of other people, and it's unmistakable. You know it. When people love you, there's no question what that is, right? In the story of the Good Samaritan, maybe we all need the experience of the neighbor pouring the healing oil, curing thirst with precious wine, binding up wounds, or one must experience having his burden lifted and the price paid at the end so as to know love. It really doesn't matter what the original intent of the Samaritan was. We really don't care. Jesus doesn't care. Maybe he did it out of duty. Maybe it's mixed with a kind of reluctance. But when he does it, it's love. Love is such that the performance of it is unmistakable. And the truth of it requires nothing in addition, just as its opposite is unmistakable. So the conclusion, all gifts find their purpose in love. Love fulfills the law. Love is the purpose of salvation. Love is the essence of life. Without love, there is nothing, but where it is present, one experiences the summing up of the meaning of all things. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.